Well, welcome to this gathering of Redeemer Church of Dubai. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church. And welcome again to our church home for the next 60 minutes or so. Well, without further ado, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. Find in the Old Testament and the uh, historical section, you get the first five books, the Pentateuch. You'll see Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and you'll find 1 Samuel. Been looking at it over the last few months. We've been in a, a little bit of a run here, five straight weeks. Next week, we'll look at 1 Samuel 21 through 23. If you want to look ahead today, we'll be looking at chapter 20 and kind of walking through these verses. We've seen that King Saul is on a murder march. Jealous of David's growing popularity, he chases him like an outlaw, throwing pity parties, hurling spears, even sending his daughter to be a snare to David. Well, David joins Samuel and Ramah. Saul sends men there to look for David. Everyone starts prophesying. It's an old-fashioned prophecy party. Saul arrives, and even he starts prophesying, eventually lying naked on the ground in humiliation, No doubt at this point, just burning in rage and in anger towards David. Saul won't stop until he gets his man. But this is going to spell trouble for Saul since David has quite a competent bodyguard. (laughs) Yahweh is with him. Not only is God with him, Jonathan, the king's very son, is with him too. David has a true friend. And in the passage, we'll see a covenant made between David and Jonathan. And this is really our outline today. Just two points. First, we'll see a covenant made in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 20. And then we'll see a covenant kept in verses 18 through the end of the chapter in verse 42. A covenant made and a covenant kept. We'll see that God is a covenant-making God with us, and we'll see the sweet covenant between two friends and see a bit about not only what friendship with God looks like, but what friendship with one another looks like. Well, first, a covenant made in verses 1 through 17. So David, he leaves Ramah, meets up with Jonathan, and we have a little argument, don't we? Sometimes friends have to knock some sense into each other. It's not a heated argument here, maybe more of a disagreement, a squabble of sorts. Verse 1, David says, Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Well, now finally, David is fully aware that Saul is out to kill him. That's not the question here. But David doesn't understand why. What have I done to earn this death sentence? I've killed Goliath for the king. I've played music for the king. I've done whatever the king has asked of me. Now, I don't need a gold medal or a kebab dinner in my honor, but I'd like to at least keep my life. At least. Well, Jonathan answers, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Got a little bit of a a disagreement here. Let's just say Jonathan is in a bit of denial, or he's ignorant, or he just can't believe it. No, David, David, it's all good. 
buddy. It's all good. My dad would have told me if he's angry with you. He tells me everything. He tells me the little things. He tells me the big things. And I haven't heard anything. So far from it. Everything's going to be okay. Well, these are the days. No newspapers. No mobile phones to spread the news. And remember, the last Jonathan heard, his dad actually made an oath to keep David safe. And so no one's going to hurt David. Well, David says, I'm best friend here. Um, Jonathan, I love you, bro. But your dad, well, he's a little crazy. Whenever I see him, his spear flies towards my face. I don't think this is a coincidence. Your dad knows we're best buds. He's not telling you the whole truth. I'm just one small step from death. Let's just say these two besties are having a little bit of a discussion. David has to convince Jonathan. He can't imagine his daddy would do this. Well, David's quite persuasive, evidently, because Jonathan finally gets it. Verse 4, whatever you say... Whatever you say, David, I will do for you. I love Jonathan's response. There's no caveats here. David, okay, my dad's out to get you. David, whatever you say, I'll do it. If it means I lose my father, if it means I lose my wealth, if it means I lose the kingdom, if it means I go from being son of the king To enemy of the state, so be it. Let it be. Now that's loyalty. Willing to risk it all for another. It's breathtaking. Do you have a friend like this? Do you have a friend like we see here? We're going to see it all throughout this chapter. We've seen it in the beginning of chapter 18. We see it here in chapter 20. We'll see it in the chapters to come, this devotion between David and Jonathan. It's a great secondary point and application that I think begs the question, do you have a friend like this? Someone who has your back through thick and thin. Someone who will do anything for you. Someone you'll do anything for. You know, all of us were created for friendship. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are loud. Some of us are quiet. Some of us are, are outgoing. Some of us are, are shy. But as Christians, we're all members of one body, functioning together, communing together, loving one another. Now, if hearing this and watching the story of David and Jonathan, if, if hearing this discourages you, maybe it discourages you because you don't have a friend like this, well, let me just give you two things you can start doing today in search of godly friendships. Number one, pray for a friend. Pray. Have you asked God for a friend like this? I remember back when I was 15 years old, uh, I didn't have any friends. Our family had moved around so many times. Every year we were packing up our bags and moving to a new location, and I'd have to start a new school, sometimes two and three times in a single year. And so making friends was difficult and kind of came to a head when I was 15 years old in a difficult school with no friends. And I was really at the end of myself, and I just one night there in my bedroom started to pray, and I asked God for friends. I remember like it was yesterday there in my bedroom just talking to God, and I began from that point on just praying and asking that God would provide friends. Now as I look back on almost three decades from that prayer, I can see in so many ways, God answering that very prayer. Pray. 
God is sovereign over your friends, so ask him for some good ones. I love C.S. Lewis's teaching on friendship in his book, The Four Loves. He reminds us that with God, there are no chances. He's the secret master of ceremonies behind everything. He chooses us, and he chooses our friends. It's a feast where he has spread the table and chosen the guests. Now, our friendships are not an accident. And so ask God to invite some wonderful friends to your life who will point you to Christ. And if your friends don't yet know Jesus, well, take effort to tell them about Christ. We know that Jesus is a friend of sinners like you and me. So pray for a friend. And number two, just go ahead and be a friend. Be the type of friend that you want in your life. Friendship is not just about proximity. You have to take steps to be a friend. So start out by simply putting yourself in a position to make a friend. Attend Friday gatherings. Attend every week. Come early. Stay late. Go to a community group. If you're not yet a church member, join us next Friday. Come to the class. Meet others who feel new to the church. Make yourself known to us. You need to get around people in order to become friends with people. And for some of this, we're maybe a little extra shy. We have to just push ourselves to do so. We also might need to push ourselves to take steps to share our heart with others. Now, be a friend by opening up about your brokenness and struggles. Take the initiative to reach out to others. It's easy for us sometimes to just take a step back and maybe just wait for others to pursue us and for others to call us or for others to invite us over for the meal. Well, be a friend and take those steps on your own. If you want to get invited to the dinner one day, well, host your own dinner and invite others now. And when you do have opportunities to talk to a fellow believer, be encouraging. <laughs> be encouraging to one another. Uplift each other. Point one another to the Savior with joy. Point them to Jesus by your words. And here's one of the best ways to be a friend, to look around and see the needs around you and to go help that person in their time of need, to care for someone who's hurting. Last week, I attended the Dubai Literature Festival here just down the road. One night, I went to hear author Mitch Album speak about his, his new book. Now, when I was a child, I used to watch him on a show called The Sports Reporters. Now, this show was, was boring to many people because there's no videos, there's no highlights. There's just four men sitting around in a circle talking about sports. But I loved it as a kid. And every Saturday morning, I would, I would watch this show. And so I wanted to go hear him speak. Well, for years, Mitch was a sports writer. He was just that. That's all he really did. But then in his late 30s, he realized that he had lost touch with uh, his university professor who impacted him so much. And so he looked him up and, and went to spend time with, with Maury, and they began to meet every Tuesday together. Well, eventually, Maury um, is sick and he's dying in the hospital. He confesses to Mitch that he's afraid of leaving behind this huge hospital debt to his family. So he's worried about two deaths, one physically, but then two, leaving his family in this suffocating death. And so Mitch, wanting to, 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 to solve this need on his own, decides that he was going to write a book about his Tuesdays with, with, with Maury in order to pay off Maury's medical death. Now, he never planned to be an author, never planned uh, to write in this way, but he had the idea to pay the bills. And so he went to publisher after publisher, but everybody said, no, 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 no. Finally, right before Maury passed away, he found one publisher who was willing to take a chance 
on this author and the advance, the, the amount of money that they gave him for that book was the exact amount of Maury's medical bills. And so he took that money and he, he gave it all to Maury to pay off the debt. Now, I loved hearing that picture this last weekend, just that picture of friendship, that picture of one man looking at another man's needs. Oh, friend, if you want to be a friend, if you want to make a friend, I should say, go ahead and, and be a friend. Look at the needs around you and help others. Or how can you make a friend? Well, stop trying to get friends to serve your own needs and look to serve the needs of others. If you want friends, stop concentrating on making friendships and instead focus on helping others. Serve others and trust that God will provide long-lasting friendships. Well, God here gives a beautiful friendship to David and Jonathan, one of the most beautiful ones we see in Scripture. And here we have these two friends making promises to each other, making plans together. In verse 5, they come up with a plan. Well, behold, tomorrow's the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But David says, let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. <clears throat> Every month to celebrate the new moon, the king would host a festival where the people offered burnt offerings. Everyone had to be in their seat. There were no exceptions. There was no email invite with a little RSVP button that you would click whether you were coming to the king's dinner or not. You were expected to be there. There was no way out. You attended no matter what. David says, well, let's use that as an opportunity to see if your dad is still angry with me. I'd normally be there at table with the king. I'm going to go out into the field. I'm going to wait with you until the third day. Well, verse 6, Jonathan, if your dad mentions my absence, here's what you say. Here's the plan. If your father misses me at all, say, well, David earnestly asks leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it'll be well with your servant, but if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? So David and Jonathan, they make a plan. Tell dad that I've gone to Bethlehem. I've got some work there. You all know what he thinks by his response. Well, here's another one of these examples of a one in a million lie or deceit that may be permissible, that might be permissible in Scripture. These are not examples for us, not free passes for us to lie. If you've ever been God's anointed one, the future king of Israel, and the current king of Israel's hunting for your life, maybe you can make a plan like this too. Also remember, the Bible doesn't necessarily endorse all that it shares. It reports what happens. The reporting doesn't always come with a recommendation or commentary on what God thinks about it. Remember last week we read about McCall's lies. Were those lies really okay? Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us. It doesn't always give commentary. Rahab lies, and we see that Rahab is listed there in Hebrews in that Champions of Faith passage. We see that. But what about the case of David and Jonathan's scheme and lying. Well, we just don't know. We do know that Jonathan is protecting the Lord's anointed, not really your everyday kind of decision. 
Well, they make a plan, but before they depart, David says, Jonathan, this is a really risky venture. This is, this is really risky. And so let's just stop for a minute. If you see any guilt in me, maybe you see some blind spot that I don't see. Maybe I really am at fault. If you see anything in me, why don't you just take me out now? Just kill me. It's not worth you risking your life. I love the trust these two friends have of each other. Really is incredible. Instead of killing David, Jonathan makes a covenant with him. Jonathan responds in verse 9 again, reiterating that he'll tell David of any potential harm from his dad. They go into the field. Jonathan pledges allegiance to David. I'll tell you everything I hear, I promise. But you also have to promise me something. Verse 14, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan makes a covenant promise to disclose to David all that he knows. And Jonathan, in turn, asks David for steadfast love. It's the word chesed. It carries with the idea, it carries with it the idea of a compassionate love, of a true devotion, of a loyal love, of a faithful love that never fails, that's dependable and trustworthy. Jonathan says, if I somehow make it out of this alive, and if my father doesn't kill me first, show me this true love. Don't cut off my descendants. See, Jonathan knows how this works. If David gets the best of Saul, what was he supposed to do? Well, David's house would kill all of Saul's descendants. They'd take out any threat to the throne. Well, they both agree to this covenant in verse 16. They officially make the covenant. This is one of the most beautiful chapters in 1 Samuel. We see God's love for us, and we see God's people and their love for one another. David asks Jonathan to show him kindness. Jonathan asks David to show him kindness and this chesed, this steadfast love. See, Jonathan is, at this point, likely understands that David will be king. And what he's saying is, when you become king, show that chesed to me. Show that kindness to me. Now, this is crazy. If we really just slow down and feel the weight of this, in any normal situation, Jonathan would take David's life. But get this. He doesn't just not take David's life. He does the complete opposite. Instead of taking his life, he's risking his life. I mean, do you see that here? He could have had the kingship, but instead he's going to risk dying so that someone else could be king. It's breathtaking. It makes no political sense. It makes no human sense. We got a little taste of this last week. Jonathan takes off his robe. It's not like David was cold and needed a hoodie. No, David takes, or Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it. It's a sign of relinquishing the kingship. It's a sign of relinquishing the throne. Jonathan emptied himself and was willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Jonathan was willing to be faithful to his covenant to David, even if it cost him the goodwill of his father. Jonathan's saying, I'll protect my enemy, stand up to the very one who could give me the crown. Well, Jonathan understood that there would be a day when he and his family would deserve death because of his father's sins. But David would be the man in the middle. David would be the mediator. David would be the one standing between them. And Jonathan asks him for grace. 
Well, friends, this is our story too, isn't it? You and I were at odds with God because of the sins of our first father, Adam. He sinned and sin entered into the world and we've all followed suit. We can't even make it here on a Friday morning without sinning sometime earlier in the day. Perhaps it's envy or lust or greed or pride or maybe a bit of unrighteous anger trying to fight the traffic to get here this morning or get through the parking garage or figure out which elevator to take. No, there's sin in our hearts. But like Jonathan, we have a man in the middle, the God-man, the mediator, fully God and fully man. Jesus stands in the gap for us. Jonathan had peace in this covenant with David because David promised to show him steadfast love. And we can be at peace because Jesus has promised to show us steadfast and covenantal love. The new covenant, it's a promise that God would write his law on our hearts and save us. And he does. A covenant is a promise. It was to swear your loyalty to one another. It was typically done in a ritual between a king and his more regional rulers. And what they would do is they would take animals, they would slaughter them, they would cut them and slice them even in half, and they'd make a walkway. And they'd put some animals on one side of the walkway, put some animals on the other side of the walkway. And you as that more regional, more smaller ruler serving the king, you would walk through those dead animals. And what it was showing you, two things. One, you're making the promise, you're making the covenant, but it would be a visual picture of what would happen to you if you broke the covenant. What you're saying when you walk between those animals, what you're saying is, if I break my promise and I'm disobedient and unfaithful, let me be like those animals laying there. It's a vivid picture of your future if you messed up. It was a promise to obey or face death. That's the strength of a covenant promise. We see that promise made in Genesis when God makes it to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. We see God even walk through and make the promise that he will save his people. We see covenants throughout Scripture. The point is they were unbreakable. Well, Jonathan made this covenant even though it was going to cost him everything. David ends up being saved by his friend Jonathan's suffering and loss. Jonathan loses his life in a way. He loses his standing as the king's son. He loses the approval of his father. He loses his father. A Christian friend, you and I are saved by Jesus leaving his throne in heaven and facing suffering and loss because while on the cross, he loses for a time the approval of his father. Jonathan was a great friend. Jesus is an even greater friend because on the cross, not only did Jesus lose the father's approval, but he faced the full wrath of his father as he took upon our sins on himself. A greater love no one has than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Oh, church, we can have peace with God because one greater than Jonathan has pledged friendship with us. We don't have peace because things in our lives are peaceful. If this was the case, well, I failed miserably at finding peace this week, and so did you. Our peace can't be tied to our ever-changing circumstances. I can't promise that if you're a Christian or that if you come to Christ that you will have more money or better health or perfectly behaved children. None of those things are, are guaranteed. But I can promise you this, that you will have a supernatural peace, that you have a supernatural peace which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have peace because our circumstances are peaceful, but because Jesus is with us. Well, we all want a friend. We all want friendship. But if you're in Christ, you already have a true friend, and you were especially made for fellowship with him. If you're not yet a friend of Jesus, go to him. Go to him. He's the ultimate friend that opens up his nail-pierced hands wide, welcoming all who will come to him. Go to him. There's no greater friendship than this. What we see in our passage, a covenant made, covenant between David and Jonathan. It reminds us of God's promises to us. We'll also see here a covenant kept. David and Jonathan are going to make the covenant. They're going to keep it as well. That's the second point here in chapter 20. We'll see it in verses 18 through 42, a covenant kept. In verses 18 through 24, David and Jonathan come up with a plan on how to communicate what Jonathan finds out at the festival. Jonathan says, if my father is happy to see you, I'm going to shoot an arrow on this side, and I'm going to tell my servant boy to go get it. But if I shoot an arrow beyond there, if I shoot an arrow far, far away, I'm going to tell my servant boy to go get that, and you will know that you're not safe. If I shoot it over here, you'll be safe. But if I shoot it beyond, far away, you'll know that it's code red. You've got to get out and run for your life. The plan is to shoot three arrows. Perhaps shooting one would look suspicious. They take three, maybe, to make it look like it's target practice. David hides, or will hide there in the field. Now he's waiting. At the same time, the festival gets started, verse 25. Everybody takes their seats. King Saul takes his seat. There's, there's Jonathan, his son. There's Abner, the commander of the army. But there's David's seat, and David's seat is empty. Now, everyone would have been surprised to see David missing at a festival. The king's son-in-law, he was a faithful servant. Everybody's expected to be there. But Saul doesn't say anything that first day. He thinks to himself, perhaps... David's unclean. Maybe he touched a dead animal. Maybe he's sick. And if you were unclean, you had to stay outside the camp. You couldn't join in for the festivities. And so he just kind of passes it off. But then there's day two, and they're sitting there for the festival. Saul looks out. There's no David again. And this time he asks Jonathan, where's David? Is he not coming to eat? We have quite the buffet here, all the best foods. Where is he? Well, Jonathan executes their plan, verse 28. Well, Dad, uh, David came to me with a request for leave. He wanted to go out for a few days. Something about his family doing some sacrifices. His older brother uh, told him he had to be there, and so I let him go. Well, I mentioned lying earlier in the sermon. We don't know exactly what God thinks about their ploy or David and Jonathan's lies here, but I'll tell you what we do see here is that Jonathan is a terrible liar. <laughs> He's a terrible liar. Savvy Saul sees right through him. Sees right through his son, screams at him, and things get a little crazy. Verse 30, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Now, I'm not a genius, but Saul's not happy here, is he? <laughs> That's putting it lightly. 
Saul's furious. He can't believe his own son, the one in line for the throne, would just throw away the kingdom and would betray his dad. You, 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 you're the son of a rebellious woman. Your mom is an adulterer. And actually, you know what? You're not even my son. Now, basically, if we want to break this down, he's saying some really, really bad words we shouldn't say in church. So I won't. But that's what he's doing here. Saul can't even bring himself to say Jonathan's name or David's name. He can't even bring himself to say, David, Jonathan, you've chosen the son of Jesse to your shame. You won't even say David. You're an embarrassment to the family. So Jonathan, you're out. Jonathan's basically being disowned by his dad for being faithful to God. Well, many of us have no idea what this feels like. But I know there's some of us here who know exactly what it feels like to be disowned by your parents or family. You know it because that's your story. This strikes your heart different from the rest of us. If you've been persecuted for your faith, disowned by your parents, this strikes your heart maybe in a difficult way. Your parents won't speak to you. Maybe they threatened you. I know that's the case. I have at least one brother here who spoke to again this morning. I know that's his story, and it may be your story. If you've been persecuted by your family for your faith, hear me say this to you this morning. Brother or sister, we are your family. We are your family, and we embrace you with open arms. We love you, and we welcome you here. This is your story. I'm so sorry you've gone through this pain, but I want you to know, we want you to know that God is with you that God is near to the brokenhearted, that God is with the persecuted. Don't give up. Don't turn away. I know it might be hard, but don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't turn away. You're doing right by following God. Though many hardships may come, though dark days will arrive, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, friend, if you're hurting, if you've been persecuted, if you've been disowned by your family, look to God. Look to God's people. Be like Jonathan. This life is not the end of the story. Well, Jonathan here stands strong in the face of persecution. Verse 32, he asks dad, the king. He stands up to, to father and king, and he says, why should David be killed? What did he do? What did he ever do to you? And now Saul throws his spear at Jonathan, and he misses. Saul is a terrible spear thrower, isn't he? He's the worst. He can't even hit David when he's uh, sitting down playing music. He can't hit Jonathan here at dinner. Saul's a horrible warrior. We know there's more than that happening here. God is protecting his people. Jonathan now sees what David already saw. Dad is out to get David. He finally got it. 
There'll be no more arguments with David about this. Now Jonathan's angry. He passes on the international buffet at the festival. He eats nothing. He leaves. He's grieving. He's upset, angry. Verse 35, he goes into the field as promised, takes with him the little boy. He's got his bow and arrows. And he shoots, and he shoots it not to the side, but he shoots it well beyond, far away. And in case David couldn't see it, he yells out, Is not the arrow beyond you? I'll call him Captain Obvious, but it works. Tells the boy, pick up the arrows quickly, and I want you to get out of here. Go into the city. The little lad has no idea what's going on. As soon as it's off, I suppose it's safe. I suppose Saul's gone. I suppose there's nobody else around because David comes out of hiding, sees Jonathan. David falls on his face, bows down, and in verse 41, they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, don't let anyone tell you this was more than friendship. This was no unbiblical romance here. And if it sounds odd to you about men kissing, then look no further than passages like Acts chapter 20. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is sharing his last words with the Ephesian elders, with this group of men who were leading the church in Ephesus where Paul had poured his heart and life out. Paul loved the Ephesian church, and he's sharing with these men. And as soon as he's done with these words, it says that the men all embraced Paul and kissed him. They all kissed him. Now, of course, in many cultures around the world, men kiss men, women kiss women as a greeting, as a sign of friendship. This is all around us. It's in some of our cultures. Now, David and Paul here were very dear friends, the type of friend we all yearn for. They weep, they kiss, and Jonathan sends off David in peace. He understood that God was with David in the storm. And David would need to be reminded of that because for about a decade or so, David would be a fugitive in the king's eyes. David's on the run. He's being chased, never in his own house, never sleeping in his own bed, on the run with a death sentence hanging over his head from the king of Israel. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. We're going to see it in the next chapters, even just next week, that Saul's on the chase. We're going to see it in the coming chapters. David on the run, one thing after another. But as we close, consider this. Who's in the worst place over this decade? Is it David on the run from Saul? Or is it Saul? Think about it. David's on the run from Saul, but Saul's in a far worse predicament. Saul is really the one on the run. David may be on the run from Saul, but Saul's on the run from God. That's a far scarier place to be. The safest place to be is in a relationship with our covenant-keeping God. Regardless of the trials that may come on this earth, persecutions, famine, danger, the safest place to be is in relationship 
with our God. So friend, if you've been on the run from God, surrender. Give up. David may have been able to evade Saul, but you can't break away from God. And the only way to find peace is to raise your hands, to raise them up high in surrender, to say to God that you are lying down your life before him, that you're giving up living your life on your own and to ask God to bring you into his family. Well, Jonathan understood this. Jonathan got it. That's why he could tell David here at the very end of the passage in verse 42, David, go in peace. Because there is no peace in David's circumstances, are there? I mean, David has a death sentence from the king. He's in danger now, and he's going to be in danger to come. And yet Jonathan can end this dialogue and end this passage telling David to go in peace. That's why we can say go in peace at the end of our services, not because we know that your circumstances are smooth, not because I know the hearts and the minds and the bank accounts and the debts and your job and your family situation and your persecutions, not that I know all those things. But friend, if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with the covenant-keeping God, then I know by faith We can end this service this morning telling you, go in peace. See, Jonathan understood this, and David understood this. God was with David in the midst of the storm, and if you look to him, he'll be with you too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for giving us peace in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for comforting us in the storms of life and giving us a true friend. We praise you for the depth of your wisdom in sending Jesus to the cross and freeing us of our sin. Father, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God through the pages of the Old Testament onto the New. You make promises and you will keep your promises. Oh Lord, in the midst of our storms, would we remember the good news you've chosen us by your grace and you've saved us in your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.